0: I'm going to continue today on the you know, sexuality, I and mean, maybe one more after this, but uh, this is kind of a leftover, or addendum, if you will, on top of what we've already done in the first six lessons. I didn't quite finish last week. I ended talking about uh, external influences in, the, in this area, and particularly the problems of pornography and how that feeds the fire uh, for many people, and it is a real serious problem. It's a threat to, to many, uh, but it's also especially a problem with parents as we are dealing with our kids. Sometimes they uh, stumble across this because it is so ubiquitous in our culture. It's, it's out there. It's present. Our kids have electronic devices, or at least access to them if they don't have them themselves. And, if, and at some point, they're going to come across that if they haven't already. Uh, you should assume that. You should assume that uh, that is an ever-present Possibility, threat, or reality, uh, and so I want to say something more about our pornified culture—a culture that's just saturated with this. And it, it's—it's—you uh, uh, it, don't have to go to the CD part of town or get magazines from behind the counter. Now it is readily available, and it's readily available in forms that aren't even censored anymore. They're just out there. Uh, and, and lure and lure you in further and further. But there is a real slavery in the sin of lust. Lust, remember, is the problem in our own hearts. Men and women both can have it. They often do. Um, and many men and women find themselves trapped in patterns of lust and guilt. And form is one of the things that can feed that. And again, just you know, for the sake of definition, pornography is just pictures of Of uh, they're they're pictures that induce lust and uh, sexual that pertain to sexuality of men and women, and uh, uh, and so I am frequently asked about how we should deal with this. Sometimes people come and ask advice for accountability for themselves. It's not uncommon for me as a pastor to get a phone call from somebody who is concerned about a friend who has this problem or a parent who has. Perhaps uh, discovered that their children have been uh, dabbling in this, or in some cases, more than dabbling. Um, this year, I uh, looked at recent stats 81% of internet using teenagers in America reported that they are very active on social networking sites more than ever before. And not only Facebook, uh, but Twitter, Instagram, and new dating apps like Tinder. Grinder and Blender have increasingly become key players in social interactions, both in, online uh, and in real life. And so there's a whole list of others. So I want to make that point clear to you parents. Sometimes they think, oh, I, I'm watching the Facebook account. Or did you know there's 20 other possibilities uh, that you probably don't know about? Because that's part of the game. That's part of the system, is to figure out how to get around the parents. And that's, that's your, sometimes that's your kids but there's plenty of other people out there helping your kids do that. And so the minute parents figure out uh, a particular problem and begin to address it, somebody comes up with a way around it. Uh, And again, that may be in conjunction with your kids, uh, but don't be deceived, don't be naive. Combined with unprecedented easy access to the unreal world of Internet porn, the result is a situation that has drastically affected sexual perceptions for young people. Remember, particularly for young people, this is occurring at a time when they are forming their sexual notions about life and how they think about it. And so, garbage in, garbage out, uh, this is particularly critical. One of the first things to realize is that rampant pornography use cannot be isolated from its larger cultural context. So many of our social ills stem from the fact that society is losing or abandoning the ability to see people as beings who are made in the image of God. Is that true? Are we made in the image of God? Is every human being made in the image of God, made for the purpose of glorifying God and serving God? But what happens with porn is it enables us to deny that and to pretend that that's not true and to objectify human beings into objects rather than images of God. And so with crime, victims are treated, for example, in our culture as simply obstacles to overcome or things to exploit. Abortion sees people as disposable because the fetus, which is an object, not a person, is disposable. Pornography treats people as objects in service of self-gratification. If you're between 8 and 18, now this is a national average, and, and some of you may say, oh, that's probably not true of my kids, and I hope it's not, but maybe it is. Maybe you're not keeping up with the hours. But between age eight and 18, you spend more than 11 hours a day plugged into electronic devices of some sort. The average American teen now spends nearly uh, spends nearly every waking moment on a smartphone or a computer, or watching TV or some other form of electronic media. This seismic shift in how kids spend their time is having a profound effect on the way they make friends, the way they date, and their introduction to the world of sex. I uh, Just a note: I happened to see this on the news this morning. Says Stephen Jobs inventor of things like the iPad and the iPhone, that in his family, they didn't allow their children to have iPads or iPads, (laughs) that they actually had dinner together every night and talked and had conversations about what they were reading and what they did that day. I thought that was very interesting. Kids have always been interested in sex, of course, but there have never been more ways for them to express that to one another at any moment of the day, no matter where they are. They don't even have to be together, and often they're not. As I pointed out last week, Jesus said that if your hand, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He says that it is better for you to enter life maimed than to be cast into hell with both your eyes and hands. In other words, Jesus is urging his followers to wage war on the lust of the flesh. Don't show any pity. Cut it off. Don't be nice to your sin. But too many people just feel guilty and wallow around in their inability, feeling bad for themselves, wishing that perhaps they could change and then proceed to do nothing or next to nothing. I hear people say that they are struggling with sexual sin, but I find there is usually very little struggle going on. The phrase struggling with sexual sin or struggling with porn addiction are often simply excuses to not struggle at all. I can't help myself. I'm a victim. I'm addicted. I'm, it's, it's something that's happening to me. I have no control. And that's just a lie. That's contrary to what Scripture says. And do I think it's tempting? Yes. Do I think you perhaps have fallen into a habit of sin? Yes. But are you really struggling? And I'll have some other questions to ask to find out if there's really a struggle. A real struggle involves warfare, doing things to combat the problem, enlisting help, making strategic decisions, developing your moral muscles. And here are a few questions that must be asked. Where do you live? And by that, it could be, you know, how you situated yourself even in your own house. You have a lot of time where you can be alone and and have those opportunities. Uh, Who do you live with? Where is your computer? What are the usual patterns of your sin? Now get out your sword and start hacking if you're really in the struggle, in the battle. Do you need to move? Do you need to find new roommates? Do you need to sleep with your bedroom door open and the light on? Should you get rid of the internet and drop your laptop uh, computer out the window or get all your texts sent to your mom? The point is, Jesus says you should do something extreme. Then don't go do something reasonable and tame. You can't go parlay a peace treaty with the devil. If you aren't planning extreme violence against your sin then you have already failed. The first step in battling sin is to learn to hate it. And if you aren't already and if you aren't ready to slay the dragon, then you aren't really fighting even if you're all dressed up for the battle. Cancel your cable, turn off the electricity in your home for a month, take cold showers, turn yourself into the police get a new job, get rid of your cell phone, whatever it takes. And if you think getting a new job or getting rid of your computer seems a little too extreme, then you're already disobeying the Lord Jesus. Because it's not too extreme if that's what it takes. It would be better to enter life without a phone, without a job, and without a computer than to be cast into hell. With all those millstones dragging you down. It should be remembered that Jesus doesn't ask us to do things that are impossible. Jesus calls us. Uh, Jesus, he does invite us to follow him. And then he requires us. Uh, and then require what we can't do. Jesus, excuse me. Jesus He doesn't call us to follow him and then require us to do what we can't do. He does call us to follow him. And that call is... Uh, Includes the grace that we need to obey. His invitation is the assurance that we can obey. But you can't obey on your own. You can't muster this purity on your own. That's why God puts you in a family. He puts you in a community. He gives you brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives you his word. He gives you his church. He gives you uh, worship. He gives you communion. He gives you his spirit. If Jesus tells you to get out of the boat and walk on the water, then you can do it, you can, and you should, but don't look at the wind and the waves. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. He said, I don't really want to do that. Well, that is the problem. Nothing has come around full circle over and over and over. It really gets back to that. Am I a real follower of Jesus or am I a pretend follower of Jesus? Real followers of Jesus may not—they they may genuinely be struggling, they may genuinely fall, they may genuinely have problems, but that bothers them, that grieves them, they hate it, and they repent again, and they they earnestly try again, and they get the help they need. Those who don't really love Christ don't do any of that. Oh well, I'm a sinner. Oh well, I'm I'm in a struggle and I really can't help it. I'm a victim. Now I want to share some wise words from a friend of mine, some of you know, Pastor Toby Sumter, but he wrote a series of articles on this subject and I have extracted some of what he said because after I read it I thought, well, I can't say it any better than that, so I'm just going to attribute this to him and I'll tell you what he said. We must always put off sin. And put on Christ. The principle here is found in Ephesians 4, 17-32. Paul says to put off the old man and to put on the new man. In fact, if Paul gives examples of what he means, it becomes clear that, uh, that putting on the new man, putting on Christ, is one of the central ways that we put off sin and put on the new man. So it's the put off, put on dynamic, as J. Adams calls it. In other words, when you grab a hold of Jesus, whatever was in your hand comes loose. You can't hold that sin and hold Christ at the same time. You can't speak the truth and lie at the same time. You can't steal and give to those who are in need at the same time. You can't be bitter and angry and forgiving and kind all at the same time. Jesus and sin don't mix. So what am I saying? I'm saying that in addition to cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye, you need to love Christ. Love his people. Get busy living like a Christian. And so let me ask you, what are you going to do this week? Instead of surfing around aimlessly on the web at 2 in the morning, why don't you start going to bed at a reasonable hour and planning the fellowship with some godly friends? Why don't you find a place to volunteer and help other people who are in need? Go to a Bible study. If you can't find one to go to, have your own. Spend time in prayer. Memorize scripture. Invite your neighbors over for dinner. Do something constructive, something pleasing to God. Put something, fill that space with something else that's productive and godly. The point is that we always need to repent of sin, but repentance means putting off sin. And frequently you cannot put off sin unless you're busy putting on Christ. You can't let go of sin unless you are grabbing hold of Jesus. The sins of lust and porn are at least in part grounded in fundamental laziness. At least in part grounded in fundamental laziness. This is because there is a gift that God has given called sex. And that gift is to be received and enjoyed and celebrated in the context of marriage. And lusting after coin stars is trying to get these gifts on the black market. These sins are fundamentally lazy because, you see, it takes real, honest, hard work to love a flesh-and-blood man or woman. And it takes even more work to keep her, to keep him. It's easier to look at pictures and pretend. It's easier to serve yourself than to serve another person. And laziness is best friends with a lack of self-control. When you're lazy, you are not in control of your life. Your life is being ruled by the moment, by the television, or by the computer, or by the friends you're hanging out with who are also doing nothing productive. You are at the mercy of whatever comes next, whatever pops up next, whatever comes on next. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, and this love exhibits what? Self-control. This love has discipline, it has direction, and it has mission. This is because this love is the person of the Holy Spirit driving us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. Maybe pray something like this. Oh God, I'm scheduling this week carefully because I want to learn self-control and discipline so that I can be a real man and learn to love a real woman. Help me keep my word and do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen so the question becomes, do you really want to be delivered? Do you really hate that sin? Do you really want to be free? Then pray. Pray like your life depends on you. Pray like you're desperate. Cry out to God. Plead with Him. Call on Him. Sometimes people do everything except pray. You need to talk to the one who can make you well. Now the Bible says... That as a man thinks in his heart, so is. It. So we talk about external influences, uh, our internal influences. I want to talk about some external influences on the mind. What do you spend your time thinking about? You no, know, that's private. I'm just thinking about it. I'm not actually doing that. But Jesus says that if you lost in your heart, you've committed adultery. To think about it, to ruminate on it, to fantasize about it, to spend that time thinking is a form of actually doing it. Now, I understand that a sexual thought will pop into your head, but what do you do with that thought? Do you dwell on it? Do you nurse it? Do you fantasize about it? Or do you do what Paul says You bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Lord, what do you want me to do with this thought? When temptation presents itself, we either fight it or we give in. Now, here is where the real struggle comes in. We either do what Paul says we flee youthful lust and we pursue righteousness, or else we don't flee. And we can't pursue righteousness if we don't flee. So we've got to turn away from one thing, flee, and pursue something else. Take off, put on. When temptation presents itself, then we either fight or give in. What we put into our minds is what will ultimately come out of our hearts and ultimately be expressed with our bodies. We either cultivate wickedness or godliness. We talked about this in the Bible study on Friday night. We can cultivate desires, right? There are lots of desires that are good, but then those same good desires can be held in a sinful way, that's called lust. You can want something that's good, but want it in the wrong way or at the wrong time, and it becomes a trouble. And you can cultivate either of those desires. You can cultivate good desires, the right way, the right place, and as God says, to cultivate them, or you can cultivate the other kind. You can nurse the feed those things... And develop. We are to put our minds, again, what we put into our minds will ultimately come out of our hearts and bodies. Our own imaginations and fantasies or images of pornography can fill our heads and nurture our sexually corrupt hearts, or else we can self-consciously fill our minds with that which promotes holiness and a godly view of our sexuality. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable uh, what is good excuse me, what is good uh, that which is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God finally brother this would be a great passage to work on to so pack in finally brother, whatever things are true whatever things are noble whatever things are just whatever things are Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate or think on these things. We often say that we want to know the will of God for our lives. There's a passage of scripture that explicitly tells you what God's will is for you. I want to, I'm going to read it here. and It's got a lot in here. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord This is 1 Thessalonians 4, one through 8 Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk, that means how you ought to live, and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification—that is, your holiness—that's God's will for you if you're a Christian. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now he's going to delineate here. This is how your sanctification is going to look. This is how we're going to know that you are being sanctified. Number one, you're going to abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel—that is, your own body. In sanctification, in holiness, and honor. Respect yourself. Don't trash yourself. Don't defile yourself. Don't turn yourself into a piece of meat. You're made in the image of God. Not in passion of lust. Remember, there's nothing wrong with legitimate desire. But lust is illegitimate desire. Like the Gentiles who don't know God. Just look around you. They're all over the place. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. That is, when you're sexually immoral with another person, particularly if they name the name of Christ, you're a thief. To defraud is to steal. To take that which is not yours. Let no one defraud his brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. You know what? Nobody else may be around and the lights might be out, but God sees in the darkness. It's a light to him. And he says, that's not going to get away from you. I will avenge that. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, boy, this is powerful, a powerful conclusion to this. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but rejects God. So we've been told explicitly here, what the will of God is, and it concludes with, Therefore he rejects this, does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. A few other quick things here. We mentioned virginity last time. Virginity is saving yourself for the one who will love you their whole life. Praying, uh, we mentioned the idea of praying for your spouse, wherever they are, if you're not married. Pray for their purity, even now. Pray that God would protect them and get them ready for you. Uh, it it, it occurred to me as I was thinking about these things, um, recently, uh, a good bit that, you know, God didn't make you, if you're a man, He didn't make you for women. And if you're a woman, He didn't make you for men. Made you for amen. And amen. A particular person was made for you. A particular helper suitable for you. And so it isn't a generality. That's why we're not going to try to be sexy for the world. Okay, your sexuality and your sexiness, which is not a sin, if it's directed in the right place in the Song of Solomon is appropriate. But it's only appropriate for one person, not for the world, not for the entire half of the you know the other opposite sex. It is not givers to share in that way, coming or going. Touch not. That's a principle in the Bible. Don't touch what is unclean.
1: Biblically speaking, the way to avoid the
0: sin of fornication or adultery, is to not touch each other at all in any kind of inappropriate way. I'm not saying you don't shake hands and give an appropriate hug or a holy kiss for that matter. That's not the point here. But you're not touching anyone in a sexual way. That is not yours to touch. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 2. Now concerning the things which... You wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now I'm in the category of random notes. Give me about three or four more minutes here. This is another thing that just occurred to me this week, um, putting a couple of things together. We talked about... uh, that our sexuality, like every other aspect of our lives, is to be used for the glory of God. And that the marriage bed is undefiled. This is the time and the place that God blesses our sexuality. It is only here that we can truly make love, because love is far more than sex. Love has to take place, what is love? It's sacrifice. It's self-denial. It's not about self-gratification. It is about giving. And to truly make love, it has to be in the context of a covenant where there is protection and responsibility and duty and self-sacrifice. And not just for a moment. Oh, honey, I love you. But. That's where you can make love, and when you make love, that is the whole package, a covenant, a commitment before God, uh, assuming all the duties, then it turns out that you can also make babies, and making those babies in the context of a covenant bond, where there is also this pleasure between a husband and a wife, it turns out God's interested in all of those things coming together because he doesn't want to just, see the world knows how to make lots of babies. They just don't know how to raise them. They don't know how to love them. They don't know how to raise them to the glory of God. you got to have a family for that. you got to have a husband and wife that love each other and love God for that. That's making love. And that's making babies in the context of love where they can grow up and learn how love also. To love God, to love their neighbor, to love their families, to love the world. So once we start picking out pieces of this and say, God, I want the benefits, but I don't, I want the pleasures, but I don't want the responsibilities. I don't want the duties. I don't want the commitment. I don't want the sacrifice. I just want the pleasures. you're still going to make some babies, but they're not going to be loved. They're not going to be raised to the glory of God. They're going to be miserable. And you're going to be responsible. God's not just interested in one of these things. They come together to glorify Him, to give Him godly offspring. A husband and a wife in covenant with one another before God, enjoying one another as gifts from God, making babies to be raised to the glory of God. Now that is making love. Final warning. Revelation 22, 12-17. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, Jesus says, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, if that's not true, as you've heard me say many times, then go home and disregard everything I've said in this series. But if he is the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end, and the first and the last... He says this Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. And we're in the world lying all the time about your sexuality. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Remember in in Revelation 3 and 4, who is the angel? Those were the pastors of the churches. I have sent my pastors to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star, and the Spirit and the bride says, Come and let him who hears say, Come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Father, we thank you for these instructions and these warnings. Bless us now as we seek to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you are not dismissed. We're going to ask Muriel to come and Carolyn, if you would. We're going to take a few minutes to sing the threefold amen. We worked on this Wednesday night. It's on the back of the bulletin. We're going to be singing this for the next several weeks. Instead of the sanctuaries at the end of the service. So they're going to come give us a hand here. Just for about five minutes.